A Monday morning in May can be a reminder that Mother's Day is fast approaching or an opportunity to reflect on the Mother's Day that has already passed, depending on when you're listening to this. You're probably in the midst of one of those. And the thing that I always find interesting about reflecting on Mother's Day is how it's something I can always celebrate, but can only be a part of as someone who is recognizing mothers and not someone who is one. If you listen in the background, more than a few occasions when I'm recording in the morning, you can hear the snorbling sounds of a French bulldog named Bruno. He's one of two puppies I've got, and even as he looks into my eyes with his big brown sweet eyes, I know that my relationship to him will always be that of a parent, but never that of a mother. And I was lucky enough to travel home, visit with my mom and dad, but I had to depart right before Mother's Day, and we took advantage of the chance to do something fun for her and have a little bit of celebrating and recognition for mom before the day and before I flew home. And it was really lovely, but it also reminded me of how many things that relate to Mother's Day and motherhood that are about timing, (laughs) and more importantly, about what happens when you're not prepared, when you're not able to plan and time everything. And because of that, how there are always complications. Just like right now, with my little French bulldog Bruno sneezing, snarbling, snoring, trying to chew on the wire as I record. Mother's Day, and the life of a mother, is so much about the things that happen when things, or plans, don't go to plan, don't follow through, or are suddenly changed. Starts as early as childbirth, when even in a modern setting like now, compared to maybe 30 years ago, a expecting couple, an expectant mother, can schedule an appointment, have labor-induced, and know exactly when her child is coming into the world. And yet at the same time, despite all that planning and preparation, I was recently uh, informed that I would be starting a contract early because the woman who I will be working with suddenly went into labor and plans had to move forward quickly and because of that all these adjustments were now being made whatever planning or preparation she might have had her child was coming three weeks early a few days before mother's day and everything that might have been expected up until that point was now changed (laughs) and that embodied so much of what I believe is a part of the special role that mothers play in all of our lives. Even after the birth of a child and preparations are made for raising and feeding and behavior and everything else, it's also difficult to follow a direct route that includes no detours, no interruptions, no hazards or complications. These come in the way of unexpected sleepovers, unannounced cookies, permission slips that need signing, attendance fees that need to be paid, or assignments that have suddenly become so difficult that only mom can be the one to bring about a resolution or find the solution.
But it's not just about the unexpected that really becomes part of the reputation and the experience of motherhood. Because it's in those moments that it's really clear whether or not mom is a yeller, a panicker, um, a screamer, or someone who's calm, patient, reflective. And more importantly, if they're all of those things. Because that's the human side of being a parent. More importantly, in my witnessing, being a mom. The honesty of reacting to something. The honesty of knowing that in the moment you're simply experiencing actions or witnessing events from as raw and emotional as well as from a centered and rational place of understanding and that whichever form comes out is the most innate part of not only the person's self but of their identity as a mother and their identity as uh it's established with the relationship with their child and how that relationship defines their reaction. And that's the definition of motherhood. I can attempt to explain it from my limited place of experience and understanding. And my only association of knowing that when it comes to my pups or hanging out with nieces and nephews or the children of friends, that I'm always going to hope that I'm going to act what I believe is my best, but I know that from experience, I could have done it better. I could have been smarter, more understanding, more thoughtful, more aware, or more considerate, or patient. And yet, I know how many times I haven't been. And it's the knowledge of that that encourages me to try and do it better the next time. And that's just from my relationship to nieces, nephews, children and friends, and as I said before, my puppies. I can only imagine that for parents of children and mothers especially, that there will always be an understanding that they have and share. That will always be a little bit different and distant from me, but not so far enough away that I cannot find it very easy to admire and acknowledge and be thankful for all the mothers out there, all the things they do, and all the ways that they continue to love, teach, and show us just how much we mean to them and give us the chance to tell them, hopefully more than one day a year, just how much they mean to us. In the course of our development, our growth, our education, and our pursuits, it can become habitual to look ahead, always striving, always reaching, always preparing, always hoping. And with so many things on the horizon, the next movie, the next concert, the next season premiere or series finale, it can be easy to lose track of the history of momentous moments that might have occurred with less, little, or no fanfare. 
Only historians have the luxury of claiming when a moment can truly be deemed historical. And recently, a very historic date, Easter Sunday, came and went, and before the arrival of the Avengers Endgame premiere and all of its excitement and enthusiasm, a fella date which still continues to ring in history for the events that occurred and the people who brought them to life and left behind that thing we call an indelible mark on history. One such man was Hank Aaron, who on April 23, 1954, hit his first professional home run. It would not be until 1974 that Aaron would hit his 715th home run, breaking the record long held by legendary baseball phenom Babe Ruth. With this accomplishment, Hank Aaron had taken the baton, raised and carried for so long by players like Jackie Robinson, who had demonstrated their ability to play and compete and succeed on the field, and making a mark that demonstrated that the excellence of baseball is not defined by skin color or background. And while his history is legendary now, on April 23rd, 1954, it was a very humble and unexpected beginning to a career that still marks one of the greatest moments in a national pastime that he has now woven the story of his journey into the fabric of so many lives, including my own. Hank Aaron was also known for a number of great accomplishments over his career, batting over 300 14 different times, hitting over 30 home runs 15 times, receiving three gold gloves for outstanding field performance, and for still holding the record for the second most seasons of 40-plus home runs. And that total number of seasons would be eight. Hank Aaron's accomplishments were recognized by more than a few contemporary athletes of his time, including Muhammad Ali, who once called Hank Aaron the only man I idolize more than myself. And among fellow baseball players, Aaron's reputation spawned a series of legendary quotes that attempted to not only define but represent the man. One of my favorites by Kurt Simmons is trying to throw a baseball by Henry Aaron is like trying to sneak a sunrise past a rooster. Ooh, and I butchered that. It's trying to throw a fastball by Henry Aaron is like trying to sneak a sunrise past a rooster. And even when I make a mistake like that, it's still a great quote. And it was beloved baseball Hall of Famer Mickey Mantle, who in 1970 said, as far as I'm concerned, Aaron is the best baseball player of my era. He is to baseball the last 15 years what Joe DiMaggio was before him. And he's never received the credit he's due. And yet for all these accomplishments, it's really the character of the man and his 
lasting statements, uh, not only his accomplishment, uh, his pursuits, but what they came to mean. For the gentleman who was long known as Hammer or Hammer and Hank, and who, after retiring from Major League Baseball as a right fielder, served and continues to serve as Senior Vice President of the Atlanta Braves, home runs were never his favorite part of the game. In fact, I love this quote in which he says, The triple is the most exciting play in baseball. Home runs win a lot of games, but I never understood why fans are so obsessed with them. But the final lasting impression that I always hope to keep with me is the statement made by Dodgers pitcher Al Downing. But the lasting image that always stays with me is a statement made by Georgia Congressman Andrew Young, who said, Through his long career, Hank Aaron has been a model of humility, dignity, and quiet competence. He did not seek the adoration that is accorded to other national athletic heroes, yet he has now earned it. And I felt that was something that was so perfectly echoed by this part of his speech from his Hall of Fame induction in 1982 when Heron said, I never want them to forget Babe Ruth. I just want them to remember Henry Aaron. I can promise you, as long as I'm alive, I will always remember Hank Aaron. And if I can, I'll do my best to remember April 23rd, the day this journey for him as a legend of baseball home runs began. And now we're going to take a quick break to pay some bills with this word from our sponsor. Hank Aaron's pursuit of Babe Ruth's record wove his story into the fabric of a national pastime. And in many ways, it was heroic and tragic. Terms that are most popularly defined and associated with the person who was born on April 23rd in 1564. All you literature and theater fans might have already guessed that I'm referring to William Shakespeare a man recognized for his own feats of accomplishment, including 31 plays, if not more, 154 sonnets, and the recognition of creating over 422 original words. Now those are some serious numbers. In many ways, Shakespeare is well-known, both for his legendary romantic tragedies, like Romeo and Juliet, as well as his historical, more often than not, tragedies, like, say, Julius Caesar. His very existence and the plays that he's credited with, both in popularity and in total number, have actually been part of the mythos and narrative that surround the man himself. There have been long-held theories that no one 
person could have created this amount of work in the time that he lived, not only for the challenges it placed on one person, but also for the amount of time required to accomplish it, and also for the amount of time when it's suggested that he actually wrote all of these plays. There have been many theories that suggest that Shakespeare was a a name that was like a pen name used by more than one person to uh, maybe ride his popularity or to be part of uh, some other process. Others have suggested, well, maybe he hired writers or had writers who worked under him and then he took their finished works and put his name on them. And there are theories that he's never actually existed, that he's a product of fiction and that the best uh, plays of this time were associated with him. And yet, for all of that, there are the historical facts which show that he was born and raised in Stratford-upon-Avon in Warwickshire, or Warwickshire, uh, that at age 18 he married a woman named Anne Hathaway. They had three children. Um, there are documents that show that he was an actor, writer, and part owner of the Lord Chamberlain's men. And there's records that around the age of 49 he retired to Stratford and then died a few years later. Now, his ardent supporters will point out the following, which was that he was highly educated and that the rigors of his education included degrees of Latin, Greek, and exposure to all of the legendary works that were written in those languages, and many of which can be attributed to some of the earliest storytellers, whether you're talking about Homer, uh, philosophers like Plato, or Ovid. What I find most interesting now, though, is the way that there are so many examples of writers in the here and now, whether writing books, poems, plays, or in our modern versions of drama, television, and film. And there are quite a few creators out there who have put their mark on more than a few successful shows and unsuccessful shows. And no one questions their numbers. And I can only imagine how in the future, if there is a, a time when writing on this degree stops reaching such high numbers, if enough distance in time will cause the future to look back and question whether or not someone like Larry David was able to create the uh, successful stories of characters like Seinfeld or the cast of Curb Your Enthusiasm. If it's really possible that Martin Scorsese directed all of the films that we currently credit to him, or whether or not Christopher Walken actually starred or appeared in over 1,000 films, which is what I'm predicting will occur before he leaves us. And until then, that's the mark I'm shooting for, Christopher Walken. 1,000 films. 
And much like any pursuit of excellence or achievement, this idea that sometimes the impossible sounds so unbelievable that we try to find a way to disprove it, while others simply acknowledge the wonder of the accomplishment and how that possibility means some greater possibility must be close on the horizon within our grasp or something we can always continue to hope for. What struck me the most about April 23rd was not only that two very signatory men such as Hank Aaron and William Shakespeare had been recognized on these monumental dates and somehow they were no longer included in our daily discussions or even referenced on platforms like social media. I was thankful and pleased to see Major League Baseball during one game recognizing Hank Aaron and his accomplishments. But it seemed that the general public, the general knowledge of the general public, had eclipsed these memories somehow from from either existence or from easy recall. It felt like something that should feel like more. And then as I looked at the date and saw the other instances and milestones or points of reference that were listed, they pertain to other elements of our history that at the time were so compelling and shocking that to mention them without knowing them meant that you were ill-informed, if not uninformed. But also how those parts of that date were as much a balance to the accomplishments as they were a recognition of how the monumentalness of figures and dates can change with not only our perspective, but our view of the past. It's something that seems to always be changing based on our greater understanding and growing either development, maturity, or ideology. And because of that, dates like April 23rd and so many others will always be a significance for those who hold them dear. And like the treasured memory of someone past, their immortality is continued by the ability of those who are still existing, still living, to recall them and to keep those memories alive. I can only hope that one day we might all be so lucky. And now we're going to take a quick break to pay some bills with this word from our sponsor. Even while traveling and hopping to and fro, I have been able to keep up with the always fun and engaging team at the DC Comics News podcast. I just wrapped a new recording yesterday with my good friend Brad Felicki, always well-informed and prepared, as well as opinionated. 
we were the only two holding it down with the sudden uh, absence of Mr. Steve J. Ray, who had family appear on his doorstep, literally, with very little advance notice, except for that moment where, you know, there's the knocking at the door, the ringing of the bell. I'm not quite sure which occurred. I'll let him go ahead and disclose that on our next podcast that I know he'll be joining us on. And of course, he is so polite and thoughtful. Of course, he was going to make time for his family and make sure that they were entertained and welcome in his home, especially arriving as they had, clearly desiring of his company and looking forward to catching up with he and his family. I think overall, Brad and I did our best. We provided uh, a breakdown of some of the, the news that's really sort of breaking in DC Comics, whether it was the wrapping of the Swamp Thing production, an interesting bit about some controversy regarding DC comic book character Black Lightning, who is currently in the new first issue of the new serial Batman and the Outsiders, uh, a new take on a title that has uh, been around for a little while now and represents a, a, a break from you know, the the norms of Justice League, which is where you're most often likely to, you know, find Batman as part of the well-established DC Trinity. And yet, Outsiders has always been an example of when Batman has decided that, no, that's actually not the best way to go about solving every problem, and that sometimes you need a group like the Outsiders who are willing to work, well, outside of those parameters established by groups like the Justice League, willing to do the things, sometimes the very violent things, that are needed to bring about the results that in a real world are necessary and sometimes fall outside of what we would like to be our moral zone. The issue here was the casting of Black Lightning and the role that his character was taking on as something of a, you know, support character to Batman, something that the creator of Black Lightning had taken issue with and had raised on not only social media, but in other conversation. We also talked about the news regarding a new uh, interesting product coming out from DC Comics called Dear Justice League. And I encourage you to check out our conversation about that and news regarding all aspects of Swamp Thing and the DC Universe and some characters who will be joining the uh, second season of the popular show Titans. And I could try and squeeze in more, but there's just so much. Here's what I recommend. Go check out DC Comics News Podcast. Go ahead and listen to our conversation. And while you're there, you can also catch me hosting The Spinner Rack. It's my weekly take on the DC Comics issues released for that week. Or how many books there are, 10 or 20, I pick the top five. That's right, the top five. And I go through why I think these are the books you should be reading and why I chose them for that edition of The Spinner Rack. I've got a quick clip here for you from a recent edition. And if you like what you hear, well, please, again, visit DC Comics News, subscribe to the podcast, and you'll never miss an episode. 
either of the DC Comics News podcast and all the topics we cover on a weekly basis, or my top five picks for the DC Comics News Spinner Rack. And whether you catch me here or catch me there, reach out and let me know what you think, what you're hearing, what you like, what you don't, and more importantly, if there's something I or we are missing on either episode, whether it's DC Comics News Podcast, The Spinner Rack, or even this podcast itself. Once again, here's that clip from the DC Comics News Spinner Rack. This was episode number seven. Hey there, everybody. This is Josh Rayner, Editor-in-Chief of DC Comics News. Are you planning on heading to Wizard World Comic Con sometime this year? Well, we have a great deal for you. If you are planning to do so, you can get 10% off your ticket purchase by using the code DCNEWS at checkout. That's D-C-N-E-W-S at checkout to save 10% off your tickets for Wizard World. And that's for any city that uh, that they will be doing. So make sure you head over to www.wizardworld.com slash tickets and use the code DCNEWS for 10% off. Another Wednesday has come and gone, and that means DC Comics has released a new batch of comics for us to read, enjoy, wonder, and talk about. Which means it's time for another edition of the DC Comics News Spinner Rack. I'm your host, Seth Singleton. This is episode number seven of the DC Comics News Spinner Rack, and it's time to give that interdimensional spinner rack, the one existing right there in my imagination, just outside of reality. A big old twirl. And as I do, I can see all the comics released from this week. And as I'm looking them over and making my decision, I go ahead and pull my top five and share them with you to talk about, to share about, to wonder about. Because if a good comic story isn't making me think afterwards. Well, why is it in my top five? And now for a story that's really got me thinking. My first book for this week's edition is Deathstroke number 43, where we have finally reached the conclusion of the Terminus agenda, which has been leaping from Teen Titans to Deathstroke and back and forth. Now what's happening in this issue is that the Titans have been holding uh, a slew of criminals, some super, some not so, in the basement of Mercy Hall, a former juvenile center that has been the home base for the Teen Titans for quite some time now. And it's also been a makeshift prison as part of a plan by Damian Wayne, a.k.a. Robin, to address a unsolvable criminal issue that he believes has only one solution. Things took a twist when Damien decided that he really needed to stop playing with the small fishies and go for Deathstroke, the Terminator. Deathstroke and the other prisoners have found their way out, 
and they are ready to break free. But there's a problem. One, Deathstroke has already made it clear that once he's free, the only way Damien can stop him and ever stop him is to kill Slade Wilson. And two, Damien hasn't told anyone, but the project, the Terminus project, which was actually launched by Slade Wilson as part of his revenge on Robin, includes a component that Robin didn't share with the rest of the team, which is when the Terminus agenda goes into play, a poison is released, and each one of the criminals who has it will die once they've gotten so far outside of Mercy Hall. Which thankfully makes it really easy for me to go into why I decided to pick this book. To start out with, I think the challenge of Damien's trading and past creates uh, mixtures of conflict with the Teen Titans team he hopes to lead. Mostly because by taking on the role of leadership with the Teen Titans, he's following in the footsteps of those who've gone before him whether it's Tim Drake or Dick Grayson. Either way, doing so means following the code that Batman has passed on and required of each of his Robins. And that has been an issue for Damien, who is a assassin trained by the veritable League of Assassins since childhood, and who in many instances has shown that he's willing to use death as the best solution when the others seem too complicated, too difficult, or simply not worth his time. Second is the fact that there is this really just funny, ugly grudge between Damien and Slade. Slade's gotten the better hand of Damien, and it gets under Damien's skin in a way that makes it easy for Slade to essentially play mind games. And watching this sort of struggle, I think, would be the best word. The struggle that's going on between both of them, mostly, I think, on the side of Damien, is really interesting because I think it points uh, a bit of a bright light for anyone, myself included, who's ever had a conflict with somebody else. And sometimes the conflict is about that person specifically, and other times it's about the conflict that that person creates with me or others, and how that actually points to an issue that is unresolved from the past, much like the issue that's going on in the past few issues with Slade and Damien, to which Slade has, up until this point, believed that it's because of conflict with Batman, his ideology, and how it directly goes against everything Damien was raised and taught since childhood. Which makes it easy to move right into my favorite parts. And starting on the story side, one of my favorite parts is when Slade figures out that Damien is not mad at his father, Batman, Bruce Wayne, but instead at his mother. And two uh, flashbacks, one showing Talia's disappointment when Damien is knocked down by a group of attackers, and then later when Damien is able to defeat those attackers and succeed, only to find that his mother either no longer cares, or for whatever reason, is no longer watching. Which then leads to my next favorite part. And this is a major spoiler. I mean, you'll know about it soon enough, 
if you keep up regularly with titles like Deathstroke, simply because it appears the next issue will be addressing this as well. But simply put, Slade has been telling Damien that he has to kill Deathstroke. And when finally given the chance to square off, Damien hesitates, and in that moment, Red Arrow takes out Slade with an arrow to the eye. It actually sets up perfectly one of my favorite moments on the art side, which is the series of panels when the arrow first strikes Slade's eye. The next panel, which feels like a pause of recognition, both by Slade's body and I think the reader, or at least it did for me, followed by the sensation and movement in the next panel of Slade slowly slinking to the ground. Now, on another note, I actually find this... uh, to be one of my favorite parts, simply because I've read a previous comic book that was about Deathstroke the Terminator. And it also involved the Titans. This was back in the 90s during a storyline where Donna Troy was giving birth to a uh, godling who would eventually be Earth's greatest uh, terror. And during one of those parts of that storyline, which jumped between Titans, Deathstroke, Terminator, and I think one other book. I can't be uh, positive on that. But in that storyline, Slade is pinned down by overwhelming odds. And while fighting them off, two machine guns, one in each hand, shirtless, Slade has, I believe, a heart attack or stroke of some kind and dies and then later is resurrected. So while I feel like there could be a greater degree of finality with an arrow to the eye, I also know that essentially Slade's programming and the serum that gives him not only extraordinary strength but extraordinary brain power is always a factor in the possibility that he could A, be resurrected or B, not actually be dead or maybe the term should be finally dead as is well known within comic books no character actually stays dead for too long when it comes to my least favorite parts of the story overall so much action going on it was difficult to really feel like there was uh, any moments that lacked authenticity However, there is a moment early on when the prisoners are trying to make a decision about what to do or where to go. There's an open door that Swerve, one of the criminals being held captive, says they need to leave through, to which both Black Mask and Brother Blood claim it's an obvious trap, one designed to trigger whatever failsafes they have in place. And that was a great intro from... DC Comics News editor Josh Rayner. Remember, he's got that coupon for you. All you gotta do is enter it when you're attending a con. And, how about that Deathstroke the Terminator? Well, I gave you the intro, why I picked it, and my favorites. But if you want to hear the rest of what fell into my least favorite categories, you'll have to go to the DC Comics News website and or your favorite podcast platform and subscribe to DC Comics News so you can listen to episode number seven of The Spinner Rack 
as well as upcoming episodes of not only The Spinner Rack, but the DC Comics News Podcast. Oh, and why not rate and review? Five stars works for me, and if you don't give me five stars, tell me the reason why so I can make it better. And now we're going to take a quick break to pay some bills with this word from our sponsor. And that's going to do it for this edition of the Weekly Wrap right here on Storytelling with Seth. Hope you've enjoyed my glance at a few stories, a few people, and a quick salute to Mother's and Mother's Day and all those who make it possible amidst the chaos, a bit, as you can see, the awakening world and the noise that comes with it, the planes, the cars, the trains, and with it, all the people traveling to fro to celebrate mothers to be celebrated as mothers to remember mothers and to think about the things that connect us all mothers parents families friends community and the things we celebrate together because after all this is our story thanks for joining me for this episode of storytelling with seth from my family to yours happy mother's day Happy weekend. Here's the celebration. See you next time. So thank you again for listening. And if you find yourself with an extra moment at the end of this recording, and you feel like you've got the inspiration to share, subscribe, or just tell a friend, well, thank you for that too. <laughs>